0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Tim Wu. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School, and I am your moderator for today. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, uh, Zephyr Teachout, who is the author of Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. Uh, Zephyr and I have known each other for a long time. In fact, uh, I was her running mate uh, Back in the 2014 uh, gubernatorial primary, and she is an attorney, a political activist, an antitrust and corruption expert, and she has been fighting the good fight for for many years now. Uh, She sits on the board of directors of the Open Market Institute, teaches law at Fordham University, and so please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Zephyr Teachout. I'll do the clapping. (laughs) Uh, Zephyr, we're we're here to talk uh, at least initially about your book and. one of the things that I found so uh, striking, so 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 moving was uh, the depiction of, of, of the chicken farmers. So, you know, uh, it seems like something people don't think about that often. But uh, what does your book have to say about uh, the, the career of a chicken farmer?
0: Well, first of all, uh, thank you all for coming. And thank you, Tim, for doing this. Um, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club. Tim and I and others have been part of this growing anti-monopoly movement around the country, and I I think it's really important, um, which is why I write about this in the in the book, to really give a face and an understanding of what the human impacts of this sort of gross growth of political power in the private sector, uh, what those human impacts are. So um, I lead off the book with telling stories and I talk to a lot of chicken farmers about the experience of chicken farmers and the monopolists that they deal with every day which are the big distributors Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrim. The reason I use chicken farmers is in part because we see farmers as sort of the quintessential independent businessman or woman. Um, You take out your own loan for your own chicken house. uh, You make your own decisions. But when you actually look at what happens when you are trying to get chickens to market in, any, in most markets, except for this tiny little fraction that is direct to consumer, um, the CSAs, is that basically these chicken farmers cannot survive without going through one of these big monopolists. So let's take Tyson, for instance. Tyson then will say to a chicken farmer, great, we'll take your chicken to market, but you have to use our feet. And by the way, you have to use the way that you have to use our design specs for your chicken house and you have to use our lighting systems and you have to use our um, medicines and you have to use our eggs and you have to use our consultants and you have to use our energy sources. And a failure to use any one of these basically means the chicken farmer can't get uh, her chickens to market and goes bankrupt and is on the hook for this million dollar farmhouse So there's this level of extraordinary level of control for somebody who looks independent. But it's not just that. They also sign a contract, um, uh, which we may talk about later, uh, to arbitrate any disputes. So if there ends up being a dispute, you'll never be in front of a judge who is paid for by the public. You'll be in front of a judge who's paid for by uh, Tyson uh, in a secret court without the rules of evidence applying. And then you also sign a contract that you can't talk to your neighbors. You can't talk to other chicken farmers. And you are going to get paid different amounts every month depending on uh, how much uh, you produce. So you're actually in this state of something that looks like freedom from a distance, but it's actually the opposite. It's a state of incredible rational paranoia. So if you have a bad... Month and get uh, your your chickens aren't doing very well. Is it because the weather was bad? Is it because Tyson was doing an experiment on you? And Tyson is sitting in this choke point role. They can say, "Hey, let's give 200 farmers this feed and 400 farmers this feed and see how it plays out." They have incredible insight into what is happening in these chicken houses, but the insight doesn't go back the other way or between farmers. So instead, you are truly a subject of this um, experimental governmental regime. Um, And one of the effects, one of the human effects that I don't think we talk enough about is that it leads to an incredible amount of um, humiliation and depression. The chicken farmer that I talked to who served as a guide throughout this chapter talked about not only the uh, percentages of farmer suicides, which you may have seen, it's been widely reported that farmers... Um, have an incredibly high rate of suicide, but talking people down from suicide and the depression and the extreme, almost debilitating anger that farmers feel because of their position of impotence. And so I I think it's important to tell that story. Oh, and by the way, and uh, John Oliver has done some, did a great show on this. Um, there's been other reporting on this. There's very real evidence that chicken farmers who spoke up against this system um, during a series of hearings that was held by the Obama administration were retaliated against. So um, it, it, the the system actually literally cuts out the tongues of the chicken farmers and makes them politically fearful, to talk about the thing that they know the most about. So this is, a, this is our governing regime. And, and the argument of the book is that we are all getting chickenized. That this chicken farmer regime is not just in chicken houses, that the Amazon seller has the same relationship to Amazon Marketplace. The Uber driver has the same relationship to Uber. And in industry after industry, you see uh, news sources have the same relationship to Facebook you see this humiliating um, uh, relationship of rational paranoia. And that is, it's bad for wages, but it's also bad for our psychic condition.
1: When I talked to you when you were writing this book, I remember you saying at one, at one point that uh, you ended up uh, writing a lot more about suicide than you expected. And one thing I really appreciate this book and why I, 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 I urge uh, uh, the, our audience to get a hold of it is it does something which is very challenging, which is to put a, a human face on economic power. Um, you know, everyone's familiar with what political power looks like, uh, you know, if you get arrested in prison for your beliefs, but economic power, the kind you're describing is more, uh, more insidious. Uh, do you have any other, you know, other industries or other examples you, you might highlight or where you, uh, you know, what, what made you say that you're just writing about some very depressing uh, conditions uh, for people?
0: Well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot that I mentioned in passing is what is happening to the restaurant industries around the country. And it's, and it's uh, become much more severe because of the pandemic and because of restaurants' incredible reliance on delivery apps. But when you look at, so once you see the basic business model of chickenization, you look at who is, who is moving into that area and who is going to be the chicken farmer basically in the next scenario. And there's been a lot of good reporting on um, how badly the drivers are treated, but the real story about the chi- who's the chicken farmer in this situation is the restaurants. So if you have seamless Uber playing this platform role, the first step is to get to be one of the two or three choke points. And-, and can think of it's some kind of oligarchic power. I think it's actually similar to the mafia in some ways, you know, you, you have multiples. It's not just one often, it's a couple, but it's not so many that you have meaningful choices. You want to get in this choke point position. And then once they're in that position, they start by extracting high fees. Basically, if you want to, if you rely on delivery to stay alive, you need to be on seamless. And if you're not, you're, it's a, a it's a death sentence. But then the next steps are um, the same thing that Amazon and other choke points provide, which is insight into these businesses. How are you operating? Well, I want to I want to gather, basically suck up as much data as possible about these different companies. Maybe compete against them. And thinking about the precarious situation that restaurants are in because of the pandemic and then also because of these platforms. And I, the reason I, I think it's important to think about that is – not only does it lead to incredible depression and anxiety, but but I think anybody, rural or urban, can see the ways in which uh, restaurants and having diversity of restaurants and having not sort of a monolith of restaurants, not just because they're chains, but because they're controlled by Seamless and Uber, is, is actually really important for community. And so there's so many values that are lost when we allow for this concentration. It leads to conformity, precarity, uh, fear. And, And one goal I have, I make the explicit comparison between chicken farming and Uber drivers, is to show that a lot of the divides that we think we have between rural and urban just aren't there. There are people who are experiencing very, very similar relationships to these forms of power. And then the, the final point I'd make is that um, we do actually have a lot of language in politics for talking about this. And to your point, point, of, one of my goals here is to take back uh, economic talk from the economists. They've stripped away a lot of the rich language to describe how we live. And people feel often really intimidated. They're like, okay, I... I'm a progressive, so I feel really strongly about tax policy, but they don't feel like, oh, well, I'm not an economist, so I can't say anything about tax policy. They say, I I feel strongly about labor policy. They don't then say, well, I'm not an economist, so I can't say anything about what the minimum wage should be. But there is something really, really um, dangerous and powerful about the way professional economists have said, no, when it comes to market structure, get out. You have no business here. If you don't know how to define what a market is, don't talk. And we have the language for describing economic success. And your intuitive understanding of, the, of, of your world doesn't belong here. And I, I want to sort of re-invite people's human experiences and say that, yeah, fear is part of, economic, um, of describing economic structures. Um, joy is part of describing economic structures as well.
1: Now, Zephyr, can I get a little more into this question of chickenification? Is that your your coinage? What you're talking about, if if we get this right, is a little differently different than what people have in mind when they think of the traditional monopoly, like Standard Oil or Alcoa. Let's say not everyone, but you know, this this one producer who who sells everything. Now, what you're talking about, if I if I'm getting this right is really middleman monopolies, middleman power. Is, is this right? Where you have a lot of producers, like a lot of small chicken farmers, or maybe on the Amazon marketplace, a lot of little little sellers. And they're, they're the producers. And then you have uh, the buyers way on the other side of it. And uh, then in the middle, the power is where the power has gotten concentrated. So that the middle, uh, the person in the middle or the, yes. the corporation middle, that, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I just want to make sure if, that, that, if that's how you see it. Now, if that's right, is that something you see that has really more recent, obviously is going to predate tech, um, but is there a pioneer? Is this a Walmart who, who thought of this first? I'm just curious if you think this just came all of a sudden or has been a gradual process.
0: No, I do, th- I, I do think it's a gradual process, and it's certainly not uh, entirely new to the, the last 50 years. But one of the things you see is the ways in which Amazon has learned from Walmart, for instance. You know, there's very close... Study um, and uh, somebody we both know, Barry Lynn, wrote several years ago about the way in which Walmart controlled the uh, sweetener used by Coca-Cola and could do so because access to the shelf was so access to shelf space was so critical. And sort of a similar kind of model of using access as a way to peer into suppliers and control suppliers. Um, I, I think there's been a lot of innovations in this form of control and power in the last few years, and certainly big data really just amps it up extraordinarily. Because it's one thing to require a certain degree of reporting from Coca-Cola about a few ingredients. That's you know, some degree of insight into the company that Walmart had. But the, the, the kind of insight that um, if you take, say, another uh, ag monopolist, John Deere, that the, the, uh, the tractor company, um, which is effectively a duopoly um, uh, market, The tractor companies, the kind of insight they can have into those farmers, like what the weather systems are like, the kind of data they can collect about what is being planted is so, so much greater that it's both an increasingly attractive business model and why so many people are rushing for that middleman role. And so much of uh, capital is flowing to that middleman role because, um, you know, the reason capital flows to it is because you can make a lot of money once you have a choke point and can differentiate between different suppliers to basically squeeze each t- just to their breaking point but not to break. And uh, And before I think you had to be a lot more general about that, as you have written about, um, and I also write about in this book, the major innovation is the legal innovation and the change of ways of our uh, changing ways of thinking about this. And so much of the changing way of thinking about this is, t- is to say let's really focus on the consumer and not look, uh, um, back at the suppliers, but but another part of this insight that that companies have that I that I talk about, and I, I it's a it's a it's a dark prediction <laughs> that I want to make a dark prediction about is that there's two categories that are uh, especially harmed by these these choke points: um, the suppliers of goods, but also workers, people who work directly for these companies. Um, Uh, In the case of Amazon, this is warehouse workers. Um, And uh, one of the things that we are seeing a pretty rapid uh, adoption of is workplace surveillance. And that workplace surveillance necessarily has a political valence. Citizens United allowed corporations to spend unlimited money in campaigns so long as they aren't coordinating with the candidate. But it also basically freed up these same corporations to not be worried at all about political spying or pushing political messages to their own workers. And, um, and workers are, again, rationally paranoid. Um, there's some recent evidence that a decent percentage of workers, over 10% of workers, actually fear political retaliation for their political beliefs. That should be really worrying. And the more you increase surveillance – not just to workers, but the, the, dark, the dark vision is to the workers of those suppliers, that sort of surveillance can, can, can jump deep down the supply chain. That has really profound political effects, because when you have a concentrated system, plus surveillance, plus rational paranoia and fear, and especially now with so few jobs and with you know, genuine precarity, people feeling so uncertain... It actually leads to a lot of people just shutting up about politics in different ways. And um, Montesquieu, who was the uh, the fountainhead, the most important uh, thinker that the framers of our own constitution relied on, uh, said that when you see signs of fear in interesting places, fear is a sign of tyranny. So, like, be be alert to places where people are strange places where people are scared. And I, you know, when I started to sell, sell this book, uh, before I'd written it, I, I was sitting across the table from a potential agent who really liked this idea of chickenization and said, um, just don't make it about Amazon. And, and he didn't have any direct evidence that Amazon would suppress the book. This is how power, how fear works, is just a, like a sort of preemptive, cautious, uh, approach to say, well, I know they control the book industry, so, so let's just, just find a different example, put it later in the book. And if, if that's a conversation I'm having, you and I have been very outspoken about our, our views, think of all the little driblets of fear that are suppressing a vibrant political life for people who are in much more precarious situations.
1: No, I, I, I understood. You know, it, it highlights um, something that I think is is interesting and important about your book is this uh idea you have of private government the the importance of understanding what's going on uh, as governance um you know can you say a little more about, about that uh idea in fact i think you equate uh, monopoly with tyranny at some point and and, and put this all together for us
0: so I actually come to this, um, to writing about this from a very different background than Tim. I, I started by writing about corruption and started by writing about public government and ways in which public government could be corrupted. And one of the things I realized is that in so many areas, we are functionalists in the way we describe things. That is to say, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, we say, we're going to call it a duck. everybody understands that it's a duck, but that there's a weird tendency when it comes to economic power to treat it as solely within a market sphere and to treat people who are acting in a market sphere as if they are just seeking cash and not power. And I just think this is like a bad human nature analysis. You know, read Shakespeare, the idea that uh, maybe there are a few people who are cash seeking only most of our big tycoons are quite happy with their powerful perch and their control over other people. And when it comes to tech, they've described this in different ways. Um, Bezos has said he's more private than others, but he says, I like to be depended on, which is uh, uh, either a nice thing to say or a little bit, makes one a little bit uncomfortable when you realize the, the degree of dependence is the kind of thing you can, you can see a... Uh, a tyrant saying, "I like to be depended on," or Eric Schmidt, who said, "Just give me a city and we'll run it better," or Mark Zuckerberg, who has said, "Really, we're more like a government." Um, and and actually, once you listen to these people talk, they are very—they're—they're they're not actually hiding their governmental ambitions. There's a phrase that's used in the economic literature sometimes, um, looking at mergers, called the urge to merge. <laughs> And there's evidence that CEOs are far more likely to uh, seek out mergers than people who are just looking at these in terms of balance sheets. There's a there's an Alexander the Great desire for power that we really have to just be honest about. These are power seekers, you know. And, and when you look at Amazon in particular, he's done an amazing job of, if you think of it as a game of risk, like taking over territories and then trusting that eventually you'll be able to extract the, uh, the the resources from those territories, but the first game is to own the territory. So one one reason I think it's important to think about it as governing is because of understanding human motivation. Another is that in functional terms, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, is a duck. They're doing a lot of things that governments do. Apple says, hey. To be on our app store, you pay thirty percent. That that looks like a tax. Um, when Tyson changes the feed hormone that they require um, producers to use, it's like the regulatory agency has spoken. And I think the example that may feel the most resonant to people is um, is Zuckerberg, who quite clearly is our privacy czar right now. We treat him as our privacy czar. Um, I hope we dethrone him. But, but the petitions to Zuckerberg are the petitions to a king who controls privacy. And when he makes changes in privacy, private regulation, that goes across the industry uh, and is it goes not just the industry it goes across the entire society. So I think we should take a a, a functional approach and say, you know, just because we can vote doesn't mean that there aren't these other forms of government arising. And then in the more um, you know traditional anti-corruption stuff, they're they're all over the place when it comes to um, uh, not all over the place in terms of scattered, all over the place in terms of everywhere <laughs> when it comes to buying up both political power in the crude sense of lobbying or campaign finance contributions, but also buying up the way we think, uh, spending money on think tanks.
1: Can I interrupt you so I just want to Sorry? tease out I just want to tease out this distinction. I mean one of the yeah. things you're saying that I think is important, subtle but important is there is a difference um, between one kind of economically powerful actor. I don't know. let me traditionally say Ford Motors or something or even Standard Oil in the old days where they have a lot of money, a lot of economic power, and then they influence government to do things uh, that they want. Now, you're saying that's going on, and that's the sort of traditional concern with corruption. But I think with some of these companies, um, you know, and actually Tyson and the chicken farmers is, is a good example, or maybe uh, Amazon's control over its uh, suppliers. Uh, and, and even when you get into privacy in our lives, that they are governing us directly, not just influencing government, but also governing directly in ways that matter to us, how we communicate with people. We can say, and I just want to make sure that clear that you're saying, you're saying both of those things, right? Uh, not just that they influence traditional government, but they also are uh, governing. Yeah.
0: I am. And, and, and thank you for putting the, the pin on that, because I think it's really important. I think people get the second easier, like buying politicians and buying think tanks. But I'll I'll give you one example that um, I've been thinking about writing about actually, which is Amazon's um, intellectual property regime. So Amazon has these internal governance uh, judicial systems. And um, uh, the writer Josh Ziza from The Verge has done wonderful reporting on these governance systems where you, if you get kicked off, you can appeal. Uh, you know, the, there is a huge cottage industry of consultants that help navigate the internal judiciary of Amazon. And there have been two kinds of stories that go in seemingly opposite directions. Stories of Amazon summarily kicking off people uh, without any process for being fakes. And stories of Amazon, despite repeated claims, not kicking off. Fakes, um, and in fact, there's a uh, so, some great congressional testimony from the CEO of a company called PopSockets, who describes his experience as finally getting the fakes kicked off, the you know just direct ripoffs um, kicked off once he separately purchased Amazon advertising. Um, so, seeing that there's a relationship between purchasing one good and, and responsiveness in the other way what's interesting to me is that we could say Amazon is really strict about intellectual property or we could say Amazon is really lax about it. I think the better way to say it is that they have their own judicial re- regime, but it's a self-serving judicial regime. And there may be some situations in which Amazon really benefits from a flood of fakes because it drives up the prices and other situations where Amazon is hurt by the flood of fakes but it's a private intellectual property regime that has some distant relationship to our public intellectual property regime. But as far as sellers are concerned, it matters far more than the public intellectual property regime is Amazon's own government, uh, governmental systems.
1: Let me also, I want to pick up and amplify something else that you said. Um, If I'm, and if If I understand your book correctly, and I I think this can almost get uh, glossed over, even though it's so important, uh, what you are concerned about is actually slightly different than what antitrust has come to be concerned about since about the 1980s. The concern that has uh, uh, been a concern since the 80s, uh, driven by price theory, uh, Chicago school influence, other, other things that I won't bore people with is the problem of things becoming too expensive, right? So someone um, makes washing machines, they have a monopoly and they sell them for $1,000 instead of uh, 500. But you are concerned, um, and it's just evident throughout everything, about the effects on producers. Uh, You know, so not just what it means to buy stuff in this country, but what it means to try and make stuff in this country. You're concerned about labor, what it means to work in this country. And I guess my question is, I mean, obviously you think it's right for antitrust to care about all those kind of things. Why don't you think antitrust (laughs) – what has happened, uh, maybe I'll ask it, that that you don't – it just seems natural that you would care about, uh, uh, you know, what it means to work in this country, what it means to make things in this country – um, why isn't it that antitrust uh, is is doing that
0: well uh so starting in about nineteen eighty although there's a more gradual story um and uh it's so great to talk to you about it uh and and I do have to say you should definitely buy my amazing book and read it and discuss it um, but you should also read Tim's book and his uh incredible history uh and and uh uh, wonderful descriptions of, of how we got here but and, and how we can get out of it. So around 1980, Ronald Reagan came in with his California wrecking crew. And uh, the California wrecking crew, think Mies, for instance, brought along an interesting collection of priorities. One priority was doing everything to roll back um, the gains of the civil rights movement. And another was deregulation. And at the heart of the deregulatory agenda was totally transforming antitrust. And I, I, I want to pause on this for a second, because I think sometimes people, even people who think they understand this and, and care about it, to, to realize that if Re- the Reaganites believed that if they could change antitrust, they could change everything, and they were right. Like the, the centrality, they were they were wrong about the um, they were wrong on the merits, but they were right about the centrality of um, antitrust when it came to the structure of our entire society. And actually, if you look at the flip side, who are the anti-Reaganites? Phil Hart, this incredible senator who had two big passions, civil rights, and he was a central um, architect of the Civil Rights Act of 65, and antitrust, because he also saw these as two key methods for stopping illegitimate power, two key ways of achieving freedom. And so I actually, you know, the core values I start with are values of freedom and equality, like this is what we should be seeking in our, um, in our society. So, um, Reagan's wrecking crew comes in and they appoint judges, um, and they bring in enforcers who don't believe in enforcing and they rewrite the antitrust guidelines to say what these laws are about, the existing laws are about, is not about all of these, um, Human democratic values. All of these laws are about making sure your toothpaste doesn't start uh, getting, uh, doesn't cost too much. I care about consumer price, and people should care about consumer price. But there's something really weird, and uh, uh, it's bad history, bad law to focus on consumer price as the only value um, that antitrust laws reflect. I sometimes think about it like, well, no, I'll, 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 I'll keep going, keep going with this. Yeah. So the real mystery then is, well, after Reagan, why didn't? The, yeah, and and I actually I write about this a little bit, but I I think one area that we all have to really think about is the relationship between race and corporate power. I don't think it's an accident that the uh, uh, the California wrecking crew that was sort of seeking a, a more authoritarian society brought these two agendas along together. It doesn't seem like an accident that Hart connected those two. I think we now tend to think about them as separate, but they're deeply connected. And having said that, I don't think I've like fully answered the mystery of whether it was a bargain on the part of the Reaganites, basically like we can get corporate money to align with the um, civil rights backlash if we give them these favors or vice versa, or if it's a coherent ideology, because I think those are two possible ways to understand the connection between the two.
1: One thing I, I, I wanted to uh, tease out a little more on this topic of, of private governance. It is um, not entirely unprecedented in this country, especially as compared to other country to countries, to have private industry occupy roles that are, would be traditionally occupied by government in other countries. You know, for, just a very trivial example, you know, garbage collection in a lot of the United States is done privately while most of the rest of the world is, is public. And uh, health insurance, another uh, big example. Even when it comes to employees, uh, you know, I think we're one of the few developed countries in the world which has the presumption that uh, employers will uh, provide the health insurance as opposed to, uh, to, to to government. So one model, if you think about the mid-century somewhere, uh, there was a lot of private power. Uh, there was this idea that uh, we, you know, people in their lives um, were, were uh, you know, cradle-to-grave employees and you know, taken care of. They had health care, maybe. They even had housing you know, in of a corporate town sometimes. So is it enough, or is it maybe your vision that if you accept the idea that we are being effectively governed by very powerful companies, that all we really want them to do is, is be better rulers – you know, if people are working in Amazon warehouses. Pay them more. Give them better benefits. If 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 our next generation is destined to, to be doing that job, do we just want them uh, to be uh, more publicly spirited, or do you sort of reject that altogether as a uh, as essentially anti-democratic? I'm just curious if, if it's just improvement or uh, or what.
0: It's a great question because I th- I think the one thing that the one thing that we should have a default presumption against is governing private power. And that doesn't mean that sometimes things can't be centralized, but when they are centralized, they should be basically treated like, if we want them to be centralized so badly because of some value, they should essentially be treated like a a public utility. Um, And have, and I,
1: you know, have
0: the non-discrimination principles, um, access principles um, access principles apply. But you're right that in a few areas, not in retail like it is now, not in farming, in a few areas, there were companies that played a role that now feels just um, almost like a, a fantasy where the companies <laughs> were did in some it was it, it was plausible to say that they saw themselves as public, um, actors and public leaders and not merely as mouthpieces for that. And there's also plenty of examples of, of abuse during that time, but people who took care, companies that took care of their employees had some kind of relationship with a unionized labor force that was a genuine, ongoing relationship and not just an effort to destroy that labor force. Not like uh, you know, Spectrum and, and, uh, and workers today, but like some kind of relationship. And this is where I think monopolization and financialization feed off each other to create something particularly toxic. And uh, that the, the this is why I want to talk about human nature when we talk about um, power is uh, there's great evidence that I talk about in the book that when somebody gains too much power, it's almost like they've had a part of their brain has been taken out. They actually become less empathetic, less able to care for people, and that Uh, right now, the more, and also the more distant you are from your impacts, the harder it is. And that's true for anybody. If you, if you see your uh, investments going up and you don't see the nurses who are fired at the nursing home, because they're not a local nursing home, it's just really hard for our brains to tap into compassion. And I think that we need, um, that we shouldn't rely on that brief mid-century, uh, the brief mid-century, uh, uh, counter examples, especially at this point, because corporate culture has gotten so focused on uh, financialization and, and sucking out the last penny. It's not that it couldn't exist for a minute, but I think it would be foolish to return to that. The question for me then, Tim, though, is not how do we destroy the existence of markets, but what are what are structures that we can have in place that make it more likely that the owner of the shoe company, hopefully not a monopolist, um, the owner of the nursing home—separate question about—I don't think they should be privatized—but the owner of these of these uh, uh, of these key companies has the capacity to ca- call on compassion and to value things other than maximizing profits. So I do get at this in the last chapter because I don't think anti-monopoly is sufficient, and I. I you know, we're at this real crucible moment. Um, I think anti-monopoly is necessary um, because we're, we're not going to get to a moral economy when we have these gross concentrations of power combined with cultures of profit maximization and uh, financialization. So we need to break through that. But on the other side, I think rethinking the nature of the corporation and using and and like aiming for a moral economy instead of something that i think unfortunately both the left and right even those with really different views have tended to kind of think of markets as necessarily like necessarily self-serving selfish you can't have market exchange and morality at the same time it all has to be rule-based there's no room for for care and i i I think that is, it's not just wrong. I actually think it's naive. I think we, that, that um, moral structures and structures of compassion are necessary for resilient.
1: No, I'm glad to hear you say that. I am of that view myself, and I'll, I'll echo you a little bit, which is to say, even if you and I got everything we wanted in terms of antitrust enforcement, anti-monopoly, the fact is there will be big and powerful companies. Or even small companies, and how they treat their employees matters a lot day to day. In a way that it is almost impossible for an antitrust regulator or an enforcer, even with everything, to make people treat their employees or fellow workers or even competitors in a decent moral way. So I am greatly of the opinion that the, you know, sometimes I think we almost overestimate the ability of the law. The law can punish, it can, it can, um, it can bully, it can tell people to do things, but it is a blunt instrument compared to the day to day of just like how do you treat your workers to give them any sick and, you know, and you can for government can force them to do things like minimum wage, but just sort of that, uh, human treatment, humane treatment is something hard to legislate. Maybe I put it that way.
0: The question is how do you design systems so that it makes it more likely that an elected official stays awake thinking about how to build a better bridge than how to, um, uh, uh, gain the good favors of one of the wealthiest people in the world. And when we have campaign finance systems that make, just take over the brain of elected officials because it trains you to be a beggar, then, then that's bad. But then we have to root it in an understanding of flexible human nature, human nature that can be really cruel and human nature that can be really compassionate. And like what systems make it possible, but that won't be sufficient. We still, we still have to reintroduce um, uh, some hope for, uh, for for caring for each other.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. And, I, you know, just to take that a little further, I think a lot of, you know, people who have corporate power in the United States, they didn't go into that job and hoping to, um, you know, starve their employees or uh, have small producers commit suicide. But they are forced by a, a broader framework to, you know, ignore their moral instincts um, and, uh, and take things in, in, yeah. in, directions. And, you know, I, this is a conversational corporate governance, which in some ways is, is, is broader than the, the antitrust. You know, why have we designed, you know, a culture around it that it asks people to ignore their, their, their instincts, ignore what they would think is humane, or maybe direct those forces towards a corporate social responsibility campaign where they you know, give some money to charity or something. But, uh, you know, as yeah. opposed to the, the core of the, of the business, I think that's, uh, you know, as important as the, as the antitrust movement. Um, okay, so here we are. Uh, There's a question about Congress, and uh, a direct question to uh, Ms. Teachout. Uh, what would you see elected officials in Congress doing to strengthen existing laws? And you give an example of a new law that can best address uh, breaking uh, corporate power.
0: So I think the most important thing for Congress to do is um, – Legislate a structural approach towards anti-monopoly, and this is something that regulatory agencies did until the 1980s. But basically, brought a structural approach. Another way to think about a structural approach is a prophylactic approach, like a speed limit. Like you may be speeding totally safe right now, but we are going to let you go above 65 because when, once we allow people to go over 65, more people die. So a structural approach in the anti-monopoly arena is to say, we just are going to be default opposed to with possible, you know, possible it's overcome to mergers in concentrated industries, even small ones, even if it's 5% and 3% of a market, we're just going to have a default anti-merger presumption. And that we're similarly, another structural approach is if there's been a continuous monopoly really dominating the market, even if it's grown up organically over uh, five years, you have a default presumption that you have to break it up. And both of those kinds of laws don't say, in this particular instance, you abused your power by uh, uh, charging suppliers too much to have access although I think we separately need to be much more aggressive in that kind of uh, investigation. Um, but they say, we just don't want to be in a situation of you being in a position where you can abuse your power. So I think when it comes to tech, for instance, um, people often have a, a organic uh, mental model of what uh, Google or Facebook or um, Apple uh, uh, is. Uh, Google bought a company a week in 2011. Right now, we are in the middle of one of the biggest acquisition sprees, the biggest since 2015, with big tech companies actively acquiring and um, it's something I actually want to ask Tim about. <laughs> this was a big topic at the at the hearing two weeks ago. One of the the repeat topics were questions about acquisitions. I think Congress should step in where regulatory agencies used to and say a default no on acquisitions once you have a big amount a certain amount of market structure. But I have a very specific question, which is, Tim, you have been speaking about the Instagram, Facebook, merger, an example of uh, a company acquiring what looked like a small company at the time. you've, you've been critical. What did you see in the hearing um, that might that was interesting about that acquisition?
1: You know, it wasn't for me just the hearing. It was the document done. So one of the things the subcommittee did, which was great and actually I think shocked some of the companies, is they had uh, subpoenaed, they'd used the subpoena power the way it's supposed to be used. Usually, I don't know what they try and do with it, but they used it. They got all these documents, um, all the emails, all the texts, and I, I think they were shocking. They revealed that um, – um, and I think it was the worst for Facebook. You know, Facebook has had a program for the last 12 years where they are watching um, uh, compet- potential competitors on the horizon, and they either – and they, there's no bones about it. They, the intent is to eliminate them as competitive threats. Um, you know you were talking about alexander the great earlier it 's a little more like Genghis Khan there's two choices: um, join us or, or face uh, or face what actually not extermination, but you face a clone version yeah and it 's very explicit in the emails and everybody kind of rumored about it talked about it. Um, the fact that the the Federal Trade Commission and the, the relevant agency let those mergers go with those documents out there is is shocking because you don 't usually get. Uh, just like in, as in criminal trials, you don't usually get the the accused saying, yes, I have a plan to do this. You rarely have that kind of documentary evidence. And, you know, at this point, if the FTC doesn't file, if someone doesn't file, it will be a, a shock. Maybe they want to leave it for the next administration, but it is, uh, the documents are shocking. Um, if I could turn back to another, just on this topic of, of morality, if that's all right. I, I'm happy to talk about the hearing. But one of the, you know, one of the things sometimes you hear that I'm curious what you'll say Sometimes people say, you know, capitalism is inherently kind of animalistic. It is uh, somewhat brutal and, and it has the survival of the fittest instinct. And, and if we try and, you know, sort of soften it, if you take away the, the ability to, you know, if you tell companies they need to be a little more humane in how they treat their workers and their suppliers, well, th- then we'll lose that, that edge which has made America the richest country on earth. And you know you have to kind of run things. You have you in fact have to have people learn to disable their moral instincts in order to have the kind of greater wealth that we have, and then make all the money, and then we should distribute it later or something along those lines. I'm curious. I'm I'm, I'm guessing you don't agree with that line of instinct, but um, I'm curious what your reaction to no. this idea that it's it's sort of necessary.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely not. In fact, right now this. Uh, this triple strategy that we did see at the hearing, uh, kill, acquire, <laughs> um, or copy, basically, is totally deadening for for entrepreneurs who then build companies basically at best to be acquired and to get rich from, not to see their magical work uh, to its fruition. And I, I know a lot of people who have been entrepreneurs who, who, Go in, or small business owners who go in with full of the joy of creation, and the, one of the real problems of a monopolized economy is that basically you're you're a killjoy on the joy of creation, because your best case scenario is to get bought out, um, and the tr- the truth is we don't know what incredible innovations are being are not happening right now because people are not saying I could go forth and really own my surfboard or uh, parking lot finder <laughs> service <laughs> or make up whatever you want and make it and make it mine. So I was actually gonna go talk about this earlier but I'll talk about it now is I think about the analogy to me about how we understand markets right now and misunderstand them is that if we thought about our human relationships with our uh, partners, you know, husband or wife And he said, okay, well, you know, sex is important. I I have a long-term relationship, part to have sex, and it's great. (laughs) Um, Most people would agree with that. But it would be crazy if I then said, and therefore, we should be sex maximizing. In fact, that would be an incredibly unsatisfying, at at all other costs, basically. Like, forget conversation, get rid of that. But that's what we've done with the profit motive. Like, of course people want to make money, and that's okay, and it's okay to have a profit motive, but that doesn't mean you maximize it. Uh, having a profit motive and treating your workers okay and bringing in new ideas, that actually brings in more of humanity. And the more humanity you bring into a market, the more creativity you, you bring to bear. Um, so I, I think we're deadening the the creativity with this like top heavy system. But I, I, I avoid talking about <laughs> What'd you say, Joe?
1: I just said this has just become the most interesting antitrust conversation I've ever uh, been in. Um, sorry, did you? But you wanted to to finish.
0: Oh, but I I sort of avoid the like taking talking about capitalism per se in the book because I think capitalism means so many different things to people. Like, does it mean a bunch of people being able to invest, or does it mean? the tail wagging the dog where Wall Street is making all decisions about our economy. Like if it's the former, yeah, I think people should be able to pull together to invest. And I I actually think on the left where I come from, there's a little too much hand waving about capitalism as opposed to like the particular systems. So my first title for this book was who will make the shoes? Like, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what a moral market looks like and not just sort of hand wave about terms that people bring really different meanings to.
1: Speaking of who will make things, I, I read somewhere, some in, here in uh, New York, or I'm not in New York, but New, I live in New York normally, some distressing number of black-owned small businesses are going under in, in COVID right now. And it's just another, you know, this concern for small producers, which has been lost, is, is really uh, couldn't be it couldn't be reinvigorating at a more important time. Uh, okay, well, if I can get to another audience uh, question, um, that, that point I had about, you know, animal passions, maybe slightly different than your point. Uh, uh, and this idea you have to sort of ignore your uh, moral compass in order to have a wealthy country uh, often comes up in the context of China. And and people saying, well, you know, if we lose our edge, you know, if we become one of these sort of uh, touchy-feely places, well, you know, then we'll be run over. And uh, there's a question for both of us here, and I'll let you take it first, (laughs) which is how do you see the role of China and its economic power dynamics in upholding the toxic economic power structures in the United States.
0: Well, I think that uh, we've seen that Zuckerberg is quickly quick to run to uh, basically use China as a defense for his own internal monopolistic behavior. But the the root story he's telling there is we can't have a vibrant social media unless we have a monopoly. Uh, an unregulated m- monopoly. And I just think he's wrong on that basic fact. In fact, we're going to have a more vibrant one if we don't allow Facebook to kill Vine and other competitors so that he has actually stood in the way himself um, or that the company by using the acquire uh, uh, kill um, strategy has stood in the way of the vibrancy of our own um, system.
1: Yeah. Let me take another, I'm going to say something slightly different about it. Um, which relates to this question of producers. I think we need to think a little bit about China's practices over the last 12 years. And I I feel like parts of the left have come around on this uh, as almost like a predatory pricing regime. You know, I don't think they have been, I I think they have done enormous damage to the American uh, producer. And um, I I think I've I've changed on this, uh, but I think this gets us into trade more than Antitrust, but they are related, and if we're going to let a country, you know, manipulate its own—I mean, in some ways, they're more efficient. In some ways, China's not. China's just willing to devalue its currency or, or uh, create its own barriers or or have no labor protections uh, in order to create products that are so much cheaper. And yeah, I think that I think my cha- my thinking on that has has changed a lot, and I think we need to to do something. Otherwise, you know, this basic idea that people will be able to be producers make money have a good life in the united states it's not going to go that far and and um you know there's this very uh you know i sound like i'm echoing a little bit our current administration which is (laughs) unusual in a in a california event but i think there's there's more to it and i think in fact that i think the democratic party has been slow to awaken to this issue and I, I don't know if you share those thoughts or if you have different ones.
0: No, I, I do. I think, and I think it's not wrong to connect trade and anti-monopoly, and to particularly talk about dumping and uh, predatory pricing as part as subsets of a larger strategy that undermines um, our society and a and a vibrant uh, a vibrant economy.
1: Now, now Zephyr, in our in our, you know, uh, uh, we have reach that point of, of our conversation where you, you you are required to tell us what needs to change so <laughs> if you have a you know you, you've thrown a lot out there but if you could you know practically speak of, of priorities um you know if you were thinking what um either a new administration maybe it doesn't matter but whatever if congress or, or the agencies or government or, or something could change what would be the things to your mind that would be the priority
0: Well, I actually think the most important thing is prior to the technical solution. It's to make this part of our politics. Um, And even people who think they know this will say, I I know all about this, but then never talk to their Congress member about it, never talk to their senator about it. I know of one politician who calls himself an anti-monopolist in his Twitter bio. Um, In California, you may be choosing a new senator demand that they come out strong on these issues and that they articulate these issues across the board when it comes to energy policy, um, tech policy, ag policy. So I actually think that, that a lot of great solutions are out there, a lot of particular things that regulatory agencies can do. The missing piece is that people who think they care about this don't act like it's part of their politics. It's like money in politics in that way, where it's if you don't actually shake... Shake politicians up about it. Uh, they're getting a lot of money from uh, from big monopolists. So it, people can beat money power, but you need a lot of agitation. There used to be antitrust leagues all around the country. I want to see thousands of antitrust leagues spring up and uh, and um, and really, really force the issue in every industry.
1: Well, there does seem to be an appetite to it. And is there is there a cultural side? You know, a, a way in which you think culture. Uh, needs to change in addition to, to political change.
0: Well, I, I there's I, I don't know entirely what you are uh, like what what parts of culture you're talking about. I, I guess I'll answer a different question because we do have these closing moments. Is I think that we um, one key thing that needs to change is there have been different anti-monopoly moments in different times in American history. Um, there was a socialist anti-monopoly movement in the late 19th century. I'm being speaking in very broad brushes and more of a Brandeisian one in the early 20th century. But a lot of the people who were leaders in the early 20th century were also segregationists and terrible racists and you know, thinking about Wilson. And I think... That it's really important, and I write about this throughout the book, that we really connect um, race and anti-monopoly, and show the ways in which merging power is also bleaching power, and the destruction of black-owned insurance companies, black funeral homes is not a race-neutral, uh, uh, not, not a race-neutral destruction. That merger policy and racial uh, and uh, structural racism are deeply connected, and and that's one of my goals in this book is to do a more explicit job of connecting race and and concentrated power.
1: Well, let me, uh, uh, close this out. Um, Zephyr, I want to say you have done a terrific job in this book and I, and I really, I really want to recommend this book in putting, as you said, more of a human face, uh, something people can relate to that is a lot more compelling than, than, uh, you know, uh, price theory. I mean, I like price theory as much as anyone else, uh, behind the, 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 the face of economic power and the impact of, of economic power and its meaning um, and its, and its potency. So let me give you thanks and remind you that the book uh, is uh, entitled break em up, break em up, recovering our freedom from big ag, big tech. Oh, is that the cover? Can you put that up again for us? Yes. Okay. Oh, and, uh, and big money. And I would be remiss uh, as a fellow author to say, to, to, if I didn't encourage everyone to buy a copy through your local independent bookstore. Um, and we want to appreciate, finally close by appreci- expressing all our appreciation to all our viewers joining us online. I'm Tim Wu, and this concludes today's program. Goodbye, everybody, and thanks.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.